May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. The transfiguration of Jesus on this mountain is surely one of the greatest experiences that his disciples ever experienced, at least these three, Peter, James, and John. Just shy of the resurrection itself, surely there was nothing greater than the opportunity to witness and observe Jesus with his glory radiating from his face and his clothes, shining bright white light. I want to acknowledge that whenever we read an episode like this, it has the potential to stir up within us or provoke within us a desire to similarly experience God in meaningful, powerful, and moving ways. Or maybe, let's not say plural, let's just take one. I'd love one experience this, of this magnitude. It's not uncommon to hear someone say, especially in church circles, I wish God would show up like that in my life. Or, to put it more bitterly, God hasn't shown up like that in my life. It must have been nice for these three, Peter, James, and John, but I simply can't relate to this. In my experience, God seems to be much more removed, withdrawn, hidden, or altogether absent. So I don't really know what to make of this. I think the prophet Isaiah gave voice to this, perhaps most explicitly, coming from a, for a scriptural reference. In the 64th chapter of Isaiah, he says of God, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, and make even the mountains quake at your presence. That is, make yourself so clear to us, to the nations of the world, that everybody recognizes you for who you are. Why don't you do that, God? I remember uh, many years ago hearing uh, a well-known atheist of the day being interviewed about his atheism and his refusal to believe in God. Uh, It occurs to me he's not as well-known today. His glory is fading But he was in those days, and he was asked a question which had to do with his belief. And the question was, so simply, what if you're wrong in the end, and there is a God? And he said rather confidently, if in the end I'm wrong in the end, then I will say to God, why did you try so hard to hide yourself? Anytime I've heard someone give voice to words of similar sentiment to that, my instinct, my reflexive action is to try to 
provide answers and reasons for how present God has been, how available he has made himself, how much he has, in fact, revealed himself. And to be clear, I believe that. I do believe very firmly that God has revealed himself in great ways throughout history, throughout time. And for us, most importantly and principally, this comes and is mediated to us through Holy Scripture itself, that when we read words which account God's activity in our world, we are not reading mere words as in any other book. We are, in fact, reading divinely inspired words that are infused and pregnant with power to stir up faith within us. Holy Scripture can do that. We can see God through his word. And for us, that's the most relevant way God makes himself known. I think actually the problem is not so much in God as it is in us. I think what's going on often is we set the terms for how we want God to show up. We paint the picture and we say it ought to look like this. It's not so much in God. He sets the terms for how he reveals himself to us. But if it's on our terms, when our expectations aren't met, we have the tendency to conclude that, well, he must not be very active in our world or in our lives, or maybe he isn't at all. It was at this point in over the past week that in reading through this story of the transfiguration of Jesus, and let me affirm very clearly a literal interpretation of this text being that Jesus literally shone with glory, it occurred to me that, in fact, maybe there is something to the claim that God hides himself, at least to a degree, because, and this is what came through clear, before Jesus goes up on the mountain, and when he comes down from the mountain, he isn't radiating with light. So he has the ability in this momentary experience to do it, and he doesn't do it throughout most of his earthly ministry. The only conclusion to draw is that he concealed himself, which raises the question, why? Why would he do that? The answers to that question are well beyond me. There are answers that are going to dwell in the mystery and mind of God forever that we will never fully know. But I do think that we can take some estimated guess into, an informed guess, into some reasons why. And that's what I want to offer for us this morning. Three reasons that seem clear to me why Jesus concealed his true glory and identity during his earthly ministry. Why did he do it? If Jesus had walked around radiating light for all to see throughout his earthly ministry, belief on our part, any belief that we would place in him, would issue out of compulsion. You would be forced. 
it would be undeniable. Now, you might think initially, well, that sounds great to me, actually. I would love to see God make himself that known and that clear. I would love to be like Thomas and be able to place my hand in the wounds of his body and know with certainty who he is, why he is, and who I am in relation. I would love that kind of affirmation. That's on the surface. I think if you carry that on out, it raises some questions. There might be some consequences to this that might perhaps not be helpful to us to believe out of compulsion. Here's one that I would offer. It's one thing to recognize Jesus for who he is and what he's done, but that doesn't necessarily or automatically lead you to a place of worshiping Jesus. You may recognize who Jesus is truly, but you may withhold yourself from following him. You still have that power in you, that capacity. You may recognize who he is, but you may still remain unwilling to listen to him, which is one of the key things that the Father wants in our passage. When the voice from heaven comes and the Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, listen to him. What brings us to the point to listen to him? Not simply recognizing who he is. Go back to the garden with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were under no doubts as to the reality and the presence of God with them. It says that God walked with them in the cool of the day. They were in intimate relationship with God. They knew their God. And yet, even though they recognized him, They listened to the lie of the serpent and not the truth of God, and they turned away from him. You could take Pharaoh, for example, in the Old Testament. Pharaoh was privy to many great and marvelous works of God, powerful works of God in his presence against Egypt. All of the plagues that were inflicted on the people in the land. And what do we see happen there? He becomes increasingly hardened. He knows that there's a God behind Moses. He knows that Moses is not working alone. And he hardens. Until the very end, he seems to soften enough to let the people go. And God's people leave only to harden again and pursue after them, to put them all to death. This is in the very presence of the Red Sea parting and a cloud from heaven standing between the Egyptian army and the Israelites. And Pharaoh still determines to be an adversary to this God. You could take the people of God themselves, Israel, after passing through that Red Sea. They go into the wilderness, and what happens? They are the recipients of many mighty works of God. They know their God, and yet, again and again and again, they turn away. 
Or how about these three disciples here on this mountain, the things they saw of God? And in not too much time after, where were they when Jesus was persecuted and on trial? They were nowhere to be found. It was as though it never happened. So maybe the solution for us is not actually merely or simply seeing more of God, because it still leaves the question, how do we respond to this God? Will we respond with a desire to worship, to be in relationship with him? That doesn't automatically result from being convinced that God exists. For even the demons believe, as St. Paul says, and shudder. They want nothing to do with him. Secondly, if Jesus were to have walked around emanating light for all to see during his earthly ministry, we would have to conclude that we indeed have a very mighty and powerful God but maybe not a humble God. Anytime you leave it up to humans to conjure up an image of the divine, we come up with great, powerful imagery. Weakness does not come to the fore. We did not account for a God who would empty himself and come down from heaven to be born as a child in human flesh. We didn't We didn't account for that. We didn't expect that. We didn't account for this same Jesus to grow up as a young boy and live his life as one of us, struggling through life, facing trials and temptations. We didn't account for a Jesus who would stoop down to the level of a servant and wash his disciples' feet. That didn't enter our minds. And ultimately, we didn't account for a God who would stoop so low as to be willing to hang on a cross and die, a worse death than any of us will experience. We didn't make that up. Many cultures have made up stories of gods, and they're far from that. The point here is that if God is not a humble God, willing to stoop and empty himself of honor and power and might, then you've probably got a God not worth believing in or hoping in or trusting in. That's probably not a God with very much good news. We have a humble God. And this comes through in his willingness to enter into our condition as one of us. I remember an author once speculating about the physical appearance of God, of Jesus, I'm sorry. And he said, you know, maybe he had a chipped tooth that he gained in boyhood. I don't know. It's not to say he did, but it's to paint the picture. No one looking at Jesus concluded that he was divine apart from this experience. He looked like an ordinary man or boy. What humility that takes. Thirdly and lastly, and most importantly, if Jesus walked around 
radiating with light, convincing everyone in sight who he is. It seems that he probably would not have made his way to the cross. Now, I wouldn't put anything past fallen humanity, but I'm going to give us the benefit of the doubt that we would not take a man radiating with light and hang him on a cross. It might have still happened. That's how fallen we are. I think more likely what would have happened is we would not have crucified him. People would have reverenced him and there would be all sorts of memorials and shrines to the 10th degree of what we have now of all the places where he lived and did certain things and people had various experiences and this is where Jesus did that and this is where Jesus did that. He wouldn't have hung on a cross. We would have memorialized him. Much like how Peter speaks up and says, should we build some booths here for you and Moses and Elijah to remember this? And we would remain without the memorial of the cross. What difference would that make, you may ask? Some are under the impression that that was an accident. That wasn't part of the plan, and that Jesus was merely just a victim. A little reading of the context shows us clearly that that was pivotal and central to Jesus' plan and purpose. In the context of this passage, immediately before, Jesus begins to reveal to his disciples, I will be going to Jerusalem, and when I'm there, I will be handed over to the authorities and they will kill me. And this is all part of the plan. This is not an accident. It's not incidental. It is to happen this way. Why? Because Jesus becomes the one who bears the sins of the world. Without the cross, we have no hope. Without the cross, we bear our own sin. He doesn't take it from us. Without the cross, we bear guilt. Without the cross, all we have to look forward to is divine wrath and judgment for eternity. With the cross, the sea of judgment parts, and we pass through safely. That's how pivotal the cross is. He had to go to the cross. He had to die. Had he not, mission failure. As we approach the season of Lent in just a few short days, I would encourage us to keep these things in mind. That the season of Lent not just be a season to try and become more devout, or more self-sacrificial, but that the season of Lent be a season of preparation truly to see God more clearly on His terms. And when it's on God's terms, He wants us to be looking to the cross. And that is the meaning of the season of Lent 
that we are entering a journey that culminates in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and there is our hope for eternity. Amen.